My friend John loves hot food. He's the kind of guy who put hot sauce on almost anything. Hot sauce on my eggs in the morning? Sounds good. Hot sauce on a BLT at lunch? Could only make it better. You probably have met those kinds of people. Perhaps you are that kind of person. One time John and some friends were at a restaurant that had one of those promotions that offered a free meal. Uh, if you could eat the whole meal in, it, in the allotted period of time, you'll see that sometimes with uh, massive steaks or burgers, you know, five-pound burgers or steaks, and if you can eat it all in 60 minutes, the whole meal is free, that kind of thing. Well, this restaurant had a simpler promotion. All it was was eat six buffalo wings with their hot sauce on it, and your meal was free. John and his friends looked at it, and his friends kind of goaded him, like, John, as much as you like hot food, you know, this, this is going to be simple for you. Why, why, sign up for it. Why don't you do it? So John said, all right, I'll give it a shot. And the first indication that there was a problem was when the restaurant's manager brought John a waiver that he had to sign before they would give him the wings. You see, what John learned through that waiver and discussion with restaurant management was that the wing sauce had special ingredients in it. It was the same, some of the same special ingredients that you would find in pepper spray. So John made it two or three bites into the first wing, and he tapped out, and that was enough. Now, the restaurant brought John a waiver because it had a legal obligation to do so. Jesus gives us Luke chapter 9, verses 51, and 60, 51 through 62. He gives that to those who would follow after him because... If that restaurant wanted John to know what he was getting into, Jesus, our Lord, more seriously than anything we might eat, he also wants you and I to have a clear understanding of what exactly it means to follow him, what exactly it means to be a citizen in the kingdom of God. Jesus would tell us, casually, flippantly, half-heartedly begin to follow me. You don't wake up in the morning and say, well, I don't really have anything better to do, so I guess I'll follow after that Jesus guy. No, he tells us we need to know the demands that he places upon us if we will follow him. And what this text shows us, what I hope to argue from this text, is that we don't make our own rules for following Jesus. He demands our total commitment. Let me say that again. We don't make our own rules for following Jesus. He demands our total commitment. I invite you to follow along as I read verses 51 to 62 of Luke 9. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. 
But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first, let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is God's word. Now these demands come across as outrageous. You almost think, as you read this, be honest, you almost think to yourself, does Jesus realize what he's saying? This is where any company that, that, that had any kind of clouds, anyone trying to get a message that they were communicating to the masses, they'd run it past the PR, uh, the PR staff. They'd say, does this, does this sound right? And Jesus just tells those who would follow him, you want to follow after me? This is what you sign up for. You have to think the disciples looked at him after hearing this and said to him, Jesus, we'll never get on the list of the world's fastest growing movements if you keep saying that kind of thing. For as outrageous as these seem, we must not just shrug them off, rather we must seek understanding. And to understand Jesus' demands, I think the first place we go before, before working through the demands in the second part of the passage is to look at Jesus' work in the first part of the passage. So the first thing we see is to understand Jesus' demands, we must first understand His work. Verse 51 serves as an entry point for the second part of the Gospel of Luke. The first part of Luke, Luke 1, 1 through 9, 50, features the announcement of the, and the prophecy of Jesus' coming, of His birth, the early days of His life and ministry. You remember the stories where He confounded crowds with His great wisdom, where He healed the sick, where He even raised the dead to life? Perhaps a good refresher for you this week would be to reread the Gospel of Luke from the beginning up to this point and be reminded of the wonder-working power of Jesus. If you're new with us, this would be a great place to join in with us as we resume our study in Luke's gospel. But now in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, the focus turns not to announcing Jesus' arrival, but towards Jesus beginning to prepare His disciples for His departure, chiefly His ascension. That's His being taken up to the presence of God the Father. Verse 51, when the days drew near for Him to be taken up, He set His face to go to Jerusalem. Now, the shift in focus, Jesus setting his face to go to Jerusalem, sets the stage for Jesus to begin to serve us. He serves us as listeners with careful, wise, life-giving words about what it means to follow him. The next 10 chapters, Luke, from Luke 9 all the way through Luke 19, they serve as a master class in what it means to serve God. And the teacher, the one whose feet that we sit at, is none other than Jesus himself. So verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Now, if you were sitting at a breakfast diner in Samaria and you heard some other Samaritan man telling a story of this Jewish rabbi who was on his way to Jewish celebrations in Jerusalem, and he'd be telling this like, hey, can you believe what this guy did? You guys aren't even going to believe the craziness of it. This Jewish rabbi passes through our area of Samaria, and he expects some kind of warm welcome. You see, the Samaritans and Jews did not get along. 
Their relations, their interactions were tense. There was a history of skirmishes, of hostility, violence. It would have actually been more surprising, this story, if the Samaritans had welcomed Jesus into their area. So James and John, two of his disciples, they see how the Samaritans push back on Jesus and don't welcome him in. And note their response to this cold shoulder. When his disciples, verse 54, when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? After read that, you're okay, James and John, overreact much? You know, like, okay, I've gotten poor service before in a restaurant, or I've gotten a cold shoulder from someone that I tried to greet and, and, and introduce myself to, and oh, you want to call fire down from heaven? We can solve this problem right now. But there's context here that helps us to understand the nuance of this suggestion by James and John. The Samaritans, as I mentioned, for centuries, them and the Jews had not seen eye to eye. And centuries and centuries and centuries passed, they had uh, uh, broken off from the people of Israel. They had gone in rebellion against the God of Israel. They'd established their own king. In 2 Kings 1, in your Old Testament, the Samaritans refused to recognize Elijah as a true prophet of God. Instead, they sought to arrest him and have him shut up. And so Elijah, what did he do to prove that he was sent by God? He called down fire from heaven on those who would seek to arrest him. So James and John believed that the name and honor of Jesus and of their God himself had been blasphemed. They said, hey, it worked for Elijah. Maybe it'll work for us. What do you say we call down fire from heaven? But Look at Jesus' response in verse 55. But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. Now, James and John, they were not wrong that those who reject Jesus, those who mock Jesus, those who blaspheme his name will face judgment. They were wrong on their role in that judgment and the calling that Jesus would place upon them. In moving them along, Jesus essentially says, hey, that's not your role at this time. Judgment will come, but not yet. I have another job for you. Now we pause here and say, okay, why was Elijah allowed to call down fire from heaven, but James and John were not? Why no judgment? Where's the fire from heaven? That makes this story quite interesting, Jesus, if you allow us to do this. We can testify of your power. We can take something out on the Samaritans who have long been a thorn in our side. You know, from our perspective, sounds good. But note here, why no judgment, no fire from heaven? I think the answer is in verse 51. I think the answer is why? Because Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. His disciples did not stand, understand it yet. But Jesus was going to Jerusalem to endure the judgment that would come upon those who would reject him, who would deny him, who would blaspheme against God. This is the wonder of what Jesus came to do. He endured the judgment of God so that all who look upon Him in faith and follow Him, they escape that judgment and they find grace and mercy. And so Jesus says the judgment is coming. First it will come upon me 
Then I will gather all who are mine, and then it will come again. So I encourage you, if you are not a follower of Jesus, understand the judgment of God rests upon you. But you can take refuge by faith in Christ who set His face to go to Jerusalem. And He endured the righteous judgment of God upon my sins and upon yours. Would you turn to Him in faith? If you'd like to know more about this, I'd love to speak with you after our service. Share more about what this means. Now getting back to the disciples, they essentially asked, so Jesus, what about those who mock you, those who deny you? You know, one of the conversations that Amanda and I are having is how we're going to approach our kids' education and raising them in this cultural moment, in this world in which we find ourselves. We appreciate your prayers for us. I'm sure other parents and grandparents of young children in our church appreciate your prayers as they navigate just all the difficulties of raising children in this day and age, in this cultural, even educational climate. It's not too uncommon for many who profess to be followers of Christ to regularly look around at our world and say, what in the world is going on? Yet, even as we carry those concerns, we must recognize that we can have concerns about where we are as a culture, as a world, as a country. Yet, we must recognize that we live in a tension-filled, highly volatile society when it comes to political discourse, when it comes to culture wars, you name it. And there are voices out there in media or politics who promote the need to, to fight and defend Christianity from those worldviews that would significantly differ from our own. We must understand vitriol sells. Contempt for the other side of the aisle sells. It brings in advertising revenue. It increases listeners to radio shows or podcasts. It increases viewers to talk news. But vitriol, contempt, inflammatory language, this is not the way of our Savior who would take us by the hand, and I would say also by the heart, and lead us to the cross, and who would graciously remind each one of us, but for the grace of God, we would live in rebellion against Him. Consider it said this way. Look at it from this angle. There are many out there who are willing to fight for Jesus, but not willing to die for Jesus. James and John were willing to call down fire from heaven to destroy the Samaritans, but where were they when Jesus reached Jerusalem and it looked like anyone who was associated with him might be occupying the cross right beside him? They were MIA. By God's grace, dear Christian, we operate on this side of our Lord's cross and resurrection. And we can have hearts of, of earnest desire for the conversion of those who mock and blaspheme our Lord and of humble love towards them because we yearn to see those who mock Him today worship Him tomorrow. So, if we are not to call down fire from heaven on those opposed to Jesus, what does it mean to faithfully follow Jesus? Well, now understanding His work as He marched to the cross and as He would be resurrected and ascend to the right hand of the Father, now we can embrace His demands for all who would follow Him. We see three ways that we embrace Jesus' demands in verses 57 to 62. First, to embrace Jesus' demands, we must 
forsake comfort. We must forsake comfort. This is in verses 57 and 58. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You know, it's fascinating. Jesus uses the title for himself here, Son of Man. And he used that quite often, but it was a title that was understood as the divine one, this one, this God in the flesh, God who would come and reign over all of his creation in perfect might, in perfect majesty, God in full power, in full glory. And Jesus is saying, he who rules over all things, he has nowhere to lay his head. Pause and ponder that. He was born in a lowly manger. Here he testifies he has nowhere to lay his head. I think this is somewhat metaphorical, but the point stands. He's going to Jerusalem where he will be crucified. He will not be coronated. He will be crucified. Even in this section, you've got to think, what are the things that are going through Jesus' minds? He's rejected by the Samaritans because they think he's a Jewish rabbi going to a celebration in Jerusalem. But in fact, he's going to Jerusalem to be crucified. And this forces all of us to give careful thought to these demands of Jesus in light of his work. Because we see our Lord who forsook comfort. And he lays all of this out before us in verse 57 to 62. And he says, here's what I want you to see. You want to follow me? Then I'm going to lay some demands before you that you have to understand. It's, as, it's like if you've been through TSA, through security at the airport. You know, you got to take everything out of your pockets. you got to take off your belt. If you're wearing like a heavy coat or hoodie, you might have to take that off or a hat or make sure you get your cell phone, take off your shoes, all of these things. And, and, and I don't know if you're like me, but you, whenever you go through, you, you think you got all of it, and then you go, through, oh, I forgot my wallet, or oh, I forgot my belt, or, you know, you, you got these things. And, and, and it... it what TSA forces you to do is to get rid of anything that could activate the metal detector. Jesus is saying, if you want to enter into the kingdom of God, my words serve as this barrier that can keep you from smuggling anything in that would keep you from me. And so he says, I'm going to get to the heart of where you think you desire comforts or where you think you desire ease or peace or security apart from me, and I'm going to expose that. Because to enter the kingdom of God is to find in me all that you need. You see, following Jesus does not promise material comfort. In fact, our Lord promises discomfort to those who would follow after him. Earlier this year, it was reported, and it may still be going on, that fellow Christians, our brothers and sisters in the faith, in eastern India, were being assaulted and driven from their homes and villages. Listen to this account recorded in the Washington Post. Over two decades of practicing and proselytizing Christianity, Badaneth Salom had been kicked out of his home several times and often harassed. But in December, he recalled the vitriol turned virulent. Leaders in his indigenous Indian village beat drums to summon all 100 households to a clearing. There, gathered villagers pummeled their Christian neighbors who made up one-fifth of their village and left Solemn hospitalized for three days. A week later, when the drumbeats began again, 
Salem ran for his life. In this part of central India, he wasn't the only Christian forced to flee. In fact, since December, Hindu vigilantes in uh, Chattisgarh state in eastern India, enraged by the spread of Christianity and rallied by local political leaders, have assaulted and displaced hundreds of Christian converts in dozens of villages and left a trail of damaged churches. Lest we think it's reduced to only a state in eastern India, I read this week of Abdallah Josephat, a man from a Muslim family in Uganda, before he and his wife recently converted to Christianity. Upon conversion, he had the following exchange with his own father. Three days after becoming Christians, my father knocked at our door very early in the morning to know why he had not met me at the mosque for prayers. I could not lie to him, and the Holy Spirit prompted me to testify to him that Christ had become my Savior. I was scared to the core, but I found strength in the Lord. That is when, when hell broke loose, and it was time to pay the consequences that many from strict Muslim families experience when they, deserve the, when they desert the Islamic religion for the Christian faith. We were ordered out of the family with immediate effect. We read accounts like this, and it makes verses 57 and 58 just come into vivid focus. And yet, today, where we are, here on the south shore of eastern Massachusetts, we will not be run out of our homes, we will not be run out of our villages for our faith. So what do we make of this? I think the most pressing threat that we face is fear of shame, fear of ridicule, fear of being driven from social circles, being viewed as unacceptable, being viewed as backwards, being viewed even as bigoted by those whose approval otherwise we would so desperately desire. Do you follow the Jesus who set his face to go to Jerusalem and tells you that as a Christian you will not be home in this life? Or do you follow a Jesus who you came to thinking that he would make your life easier? An offer of salvation in the life to come, you accepted. But you did not sign up for hardship and discomfort in this life. If that is you, I encourage you to give thought to our Lord's words here. The Christian life, the kingdom of God is far more difficult in this world but it is far more blessedly beautiful as well. Here's how we understand Jesus in the kingdom of God. We read this and we might think, okay, if you do this and you do this and you do this, God will love you. You will know God. What do I do, Jesus, to, to earn your love? Here's what I do. Okay, I, I need your love. I want you to give it to me and I'll try to walk in obedience to this. But that's not what Jesus is getting at. God's love for us is not measured in what we do for him. Rather, it's measured in the resolve of his heart to pour his love out upon you. This passage actually serves to illustrate that you will be fruitless if you try to serve your way into God's kingdom. I think Jesus is setting the bar so high that we look at it and we say, who can enter in this? You must enter by faith. But here's the thing. It is not a faith that does nothing. It is a faith that gives everything. It's a faith that is willing to forsake everything else to cling to Christ. That's what this passage shows us. It shows us you cannot do everything, but you must surrender everything. Do you catch the difference between the two? 
If you say, what must I do to earn your love, O God? You will never be able to do everything. But if you are a recipient of his love, of his grace, by faith, he says, you want to enter the kingdom of God, you surrender everything. I become your all-consuming, precious joy. So we must forsake comfort. If we were to embrace Jesus' demands. Second, if we were to embrace Jesus' demands, we must feel the cost. We must feel the cost in verses 59 and 60. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. You know, this is one of those verses that are many of you who have perhaps been around the Bible for a while, you, you have some kind of either familiarity with it or, or just kind of tangential familiarity with it. And, and you read it and, and, and you think about it, leave the dead to bury the dead. And then you, you, you look at it from a different angle and then you try to read it again. And then you carefully think about it, maybe mention it to a Christian friend and say, hey, what do you think about that verse about leaving your dad to die? And and following Jesus, and then you, you, you kind of ultimately look at it and say, huh, yeah, there's no easy way around that one, no matter what angle I look at it. Scholars have attempted to give various explanations for what Jesus is addressing. Was the, dad's, was the guy's dad older in age, and so Jesus is, uh, he, he didn't know when his dad was going to die, and so he's just kind of like, ah, I'll come whenever my dad's gone. I don't, we don't think that his dad had just passed away and like the funeral was in two days because like Jewish religious observances, he would have been with his family and all that. But here's what's happening. We don't have to know what the health situation was of the dad. You see, elsewhere in Scripture, even in the Gospels, Jesus underscores and affirms responsibilities of sons and daughters to their aging parents. Here's what Jesus is doing. This passage reveals how we can take a good thing, a good culturally acceptable responsibility, and place it in a place of greater importance to us than obedience to Jesus and following Jesus. Said another way, there is a temptation to sanitize our unwillingness to follow or surrender everything to Jesus. We have a temptation to sanitize that with seemingly acceptable obligations. You catch that? So Jesus, th- this guy coming to Jesus, said, I've got these family, I, I, I don't want to risk strife or discord with my dad if I start to follow you. Or maybe you're in a similar boat where your family costs weigh upon you if you become a follower of Jesus. Or maybe you think, yeah, I'm at a point in my career where, okay, I, I, I want to be more serious about my faith, but my career places these demands on me. I have these responsibilities, these burdens, or my family's at a certain age where I've just got, I've got all these different pressures. And later on, I'll, 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 I'll kick it into gear a little bit. And Jesus says, no, you're sanitizing your objections for following me, and you're just putting a happy face on it. You're putting something acceptable on it. And you know what's truly fascinating about this as we consider these disciples? Well, there's, there's one thing we're going to get to in a moment about these unnamed disciples. But one thing that's fascinating about it is James and John, they wanted to call fire down on their perceived enemies. And Jesus, in essence, says, hold on a second, guys. Jesus says, you, you want to call fire on them, you need to love them more. 
But now this unnamed disciple wants to elevate his beloved family to a place where he says, I've just got these family obligations. I know you understand, Jesus. And Jesus says to them, you actually love them too much. See, in the mystery and the wonder of God's work in our lives, he elevates our love towards those that we don't naturally want to love. And he lowers our loves towards those that we want to love in a manner that actually robs us of loving him. Do you catch what's happening in this passage? So how do family demands affect your obedience to Christ with gathering with our church family each week? Do you attend when other demands don't exist? I know the church is a priority, but there are just greater priorities that always have to win the day, and church seems to always be at the bottom of the list. Take family demands and calendar out of it. Perhaps a fitting response to this sermon would be to carefully, prayerfully ask the Lord to help you to see ways in which you dismiss the call to obedience to Jesus for whatever reason, whether it's in service of family or in service to other quote-unquote acceptable barriers to entering the kingdom. In 1995, a man in Pittsburgh was arrested for robbing two banks. He wore no mask. He had nothing to hide his identity. He even smiled at security cameras as he left the banks. When he was arrested, he kind of said to himself, kind of muttered, but I put the juice on my face and everything. Turns out the police were kind of bewildered. What did he just say? They found out that he had rubbed lemon juice all over his face. Lemon juice is a form of invisible ink. He thought that would cause his face to disappear on security cameras. He became exhibit A of what is known as the Dunning-Kruger effect. It's a scientific conclusion that shows that we regularly overstate our abilities. You might think, I don't think I overstate my abilities. When last did you set a to-do list on your day off and get all of it done? No. You always say, oh, I can do this, 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 and we get like half of it done. Or work, I've got all these things I've got to get done before I leave the office. I should, I should be fine. And you get a third of it done. We regularly overstate our abilities. And we might have ways in which it's not that big of a deal, but what the danger that Jesus is speaking of with these potential dis- disciples, as well as to you and me, is that we think ourselves in one light as followers of His When in fact he shows us, you don't even fully understand what it means to be in my kingdom. You live thinking, I'm a pretty good Christian, and yet what I'm showing you is that a kingdom, I'm I'm, I'm laying before you a kingdom that you must give everything up for, and you say, hold on a second here, Jesus. This is sobering. This is a funny illustration, but it's a serious thing. I don't want to pastor a church full of people with lemon juice on their face. As we give thoughts to these demands, I I pull perspective out. And if I'm honest, I confess this is an area where I have fallen short as your pastor. At my core, I naturally, I, I want people to like me. I want the church I pastor to like me. I don't want to be a jerk or seem as if I don't understand Yet our Lord, who knows all of us better than we know ourselves, He gives us this word and invites us to enter His kingdom. Woe to me as your pastor. Woe to our elders if we do not give you this Jesus 
but give you a more culturally acceptable Jesus, one that agrees with the desires and the demands of our hearts. Lord, have mercy upon us. If we will embrace Jesus' demands, we must what? Do two things. We must uh, forsake comfort. We must secondly feel the cost. And third, verses 61 and 62, we must fully commit. Understand this. Jesus presses for full commitment. He doesn't press for full obedience. That'd be perfection. That's impossible. But he presses for full commitment. He doesn't give them a list of 500 things they have to do and make sure you do them right. No, he wants full commitment. That's what's happening here. Verse 61, another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts hand to plow and looks back as fit for the kingdom of God. Dear Christian, hear this. You will not taste the glorious feast of the kingdom of God if you look back longingly at the crumbs you ate on the floor of this world. In his final exchange, Jesus articulates the beauty and the pull of the kingdom of God with a farming illustration his audience would understand. Don't know how many of you have ever operated a plow before. We'll do an illustration. Imagine mowing the yard. When you're mowing the yard, you're trying to keep a straight line. You're looking at where you're going. You've got to be focused on what's ahead, what's before you. You're going to go all sorts of different ways and mess it up if you look backwards. Next time, try to mow the yard looking backwards. See how that goes for you. That's what Jesus is saying here. But it's so hard not to look back, isn't it? It's so hard not to look back. If you're single, it's hard not to look back. The number of Christian singles in greater Boston is not high. And you might think, surely I can find a spouse who, okay, they aren't a Christian, but I can find someone who will understand and respect my faith. Isn't that good enough? Be careful that in your desire for companionship and love, you aren't looking back after setting your hand to the plow. Or perhaps you're enamored with entertainment and leisure to a point where the idea of turning off the TV every once in a while to read theology or to grow in your grasp of the wonders of God's Word or to fellowship with other brothers and sisters around the Word and in prayer together is a foreign concept. The idea of it just seems boring. Oh, may the entertainment and luxuries of this life not be what we look back upon with our hands set to the plow. I'm not saying we never enjoy a movie, never enjoy TV. I'm saying we make sure that we're not looking back all the time, that we're not looking forward and enjoying the pleasures and the benefits of God's Word and grace and fellowship with one another in the body. Is Jesus an accessory to the good life you seek or is He your all-consuming passion? This is what he wants us to know. You know what's absolutely fascinating about this story? I think James and John have a bit of a gripe with Jesus. I say that very tongue-in-cheek, in case you can't tell. You know, they wanted to call down fire on the Samaritans. And they're recorded throughout history as the ones who wanted to call down fire on the Samaritans. It's possible six trillion years from now, you're walking through heaven and you pass James and John and you say, hey, remember when those guys wanted to call down fire on the Samaritans? 
They're going to be like, did that really have to be recorded? It was one time we didn't understand, okay? But we have three disciples here, three possible disciples, unnamed. Unnamed. One wants to bury his dad. One wants to say goodbye to his family. One wants to um, follow Jesus, just he doesn't want to give up his comforts. I think Luke is using a very clever literary device tool skill with us here. You notice, we don't see how they respond. We don't see, like, like did the guy say, all right, Jesus, I understand. I'm, goodbye, Dad. I'm, I'm with you. We don't see it. If the story is concluded, and we would see it and we'd say, oh, that guy responded that way. That guy responded this way. No, I think we get these three instances for this reason. Because Luke wants us to see and to now say, don't worry about how they responded. The question is, how will you respond? I think that's what he has for us here. And Jesus in verses 60 and 62 says, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, what exactly is worth proclaiming? You remember those little tables that would be set up in grocery stores or big box stores? I guess it was pre-COVID that, that they'd have like the small samples. Like, oh, would you like this new pizza bite that we have that's on, on you know, and you take a little sample and the idea would be like, oh, wow, that tastes so good. And, and, and then you'd buy a box or 12 and, and they do sales based on that and everything. Jesus was revealed to us and he has shown that he is the entry point for the kingdom of God. And what he is showing us is that the loves, the attachment that you feel to family, the desire that you have for entertainment or or, or pleasure, the the longings that your heart feels wherever they may work themselves out and go, the desires that grip your heart, he's showing us they are a small taste, they are a preview of greater loves and joys in the kingdom of God. Catch that? The kingdom of God cannot be entered halfway. You cannot have one foot in the kingdoms of this world and one foot in the kingdom of God. Do you want to know why? Because your heart is too precious. It is too naturally inclined to worship and to affection and adoration that your heart simply cannot be divided. It's either all or not. And what Jesus says is, I want you to have all of your heart. And so what we see as I conclude is that This isn't just a waiver that Jesus gives us on here's what you need to know about following me, but it's also an invitation. There's a scene in the final book of the Chronicles of Narnia, the last battle. The children who are the four main characters in the Chronicles of Narnia have entered into a new and greater Narnia, far greater than the original one that they knew. The loves, the relationships, even the families that they knew in the first life were not permanent. They were all intended to be a foretaste of a greater love, of a greater peace, of a greater reality that this new Narnia could give them. And this scene from the last battle helps to explain how in Jesus, this life is swallowed up in a greater life in the kingdom of God. Reading from Chronicles of Narnia, it is, the, the author states, it is hard to explain how this sunlit land was different from the old Narnia. It's hard to explain as it would be to tell you how the fruits of that country taste. Perhaps you will get some idea of it, though, if you think like this. You may have been in a room in which there was a window that looked out on a lovely bay of the sea or a green valley that wound away among mountains. And in the wall of that room opposite to the window, there may have been a looking glass. 
And as you turned away from the window, you suddenly caught sight of that sea or that valley all over again, but through the looking glass. And the sea in the mirror or the valley in the mirror were in one sense just as the same as the real ones. Yet at the same time, they were somehow different, deeper, more wonderful, more like places in a story, in a story you have never heard, but very much want to know. The difference between the old Narnia was like that. The new one was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. If you ever get there, you will know what I mean. Now, recounting a unicorn who was there in the story, it was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling as they heard this. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and neighed and then cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Come further up. Come further in. Dear church, the difficult demands of Jesus are not a summons to a taskmaster who will rule over you harshly. They are an invitation to our Lord who set his face to go to Jerusalem and invites you to enter into his kingdom and to come further up and further in. No matter the comforts that must be forsaken, no matter the cost that you will feel, no matter how full the commitment may be, our Lord and his kingdom is preciously beautiful and worthy of all commitment. We don't make our own rules for following Jesus, dear church. He demands and is worthy of our total commitment.